Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, I don't think I introduced myself earlier, so there you have it now. Uh, And if you're visiting us on a day where we get to do some family stuff, we're so glad you got to see that because really, uh, this is about community. This is about being family together and uh, and learning to grow together. So it's a joy to have you with us. We're finishing up a series today called Listening to God's Voice. Little tidbit for next week. I'm not sure I should tell you this, to be honest. It's the first week of Lent, and we're moving into a series on imagery from Jeremiah. Now, we've seen some new people come in recently, and I wanted to check you were here for the right reasons. So we're doing this because it's like as hard as it gets. Uh, This is the longest book in the Bible. Jeremiah is, is 52 chapters, and it's quite painful chapters. And every season when we get around to Lent, what I say is this, this is God's protection for you from an Enneagram 7 upbeat, happy-go-lucky pastor. We get to descend into some of the depths of human emotion for six weeks, and we get to do that with Jeremiah, who has a lot to say about pain, suffering, lament, and all of those different things. And so if you're not here now, next week we'll know why. Um, So I'm on to you. Um, But this week we're talking about... Hmm. Did that work? Did I do that? Oh, I think I got it. There we go. Um, We're talking about listening to God's voice. It's our our third week doing this. And it is an emotive subject. It's a subject that for some people has been painful. There's been experiences where you would say, I believed at one point God said this to me. And maybe it didn't happen. And maybe now you question whether he speaks at all. Maybe you've seen it abused. Maybe you've seen ways that people have said, God has said this. And you've said, that doesn't sound like the sort of thing... He'd say this, this is a topic that is, is challenging, is difficult, has some emotion to it. Uh, a few years ago, I was praying with my kids in the evening, and, and my oldest daughter, Elena, has always had a fairly easygoing faith. So she's prayed the same prayer every night for the last however many years. And my second daughter, Gigi, well, she has questions. Uh, and she wants answers to them usually at about nine o'clock in the evening. And so we were, we were cuddled up praying and, and we finished the prayer time. And at nine o'clock, she threw me this. How come we speak to God and he doesn't speak to us? I was like, nine o'clock. I was like, I was hoping to get a couple of Netflix shows in, but we can go there if you want to go there at nine o'clock in the evening. So I said, well, he does, but we have to learn to listen. And Gigi, never one for the easy answer, said, so how do you learn to do that? And I said, well, the next time that you have prayed, why don't you just lie there and say, God, uh, have you got anything to say to me? And maybe somewhere deep inside you, in a place that may not even sound like a voice, maybe that's a place where you might begin to hear him. That that question she asked, does God speak, is maybe the question that we're wrestling with that weekend. And maybe even more importantly, does God speak to me? Does he speak to normal people like you and I? People that maybe certainly aren't perfect, maybe have some history, maybe we don't dress in suits for church, maybe we don't always look like everything is right. Does he speak to everyday people like me? The picture Jesus paints is this. My sheep, my followers, they listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The writer Dallas Willard phrases it like this. We're not trying to hear God because he is not necessarily the right word. We're trying to perceive God. And perceive is different 
than here. The, the speaker N.T. Wright tells a story about an English professor who was invited out to America to come and speak at a conference. And so he jotted in his notebook, six months, go and speak at this conference on the subject of who is God. Nice and broad, easy to pick an option. And so he arrived out and he prepared his topic, flew out to America and, and he got up and he spoke on, if there was not Trinity in the Bible, it would be necessary to create Trinity. And, sat down to rapturous applause. And he kind of, you know, sat for a while, and the guy next to him said, that's an awfully brave subject to pick. And he kind of thought for a second, it doesn't seem so brave at all. Like, it just seems talking about the Trinity in a Christian church, the idea that God is three and also one, seems fairly normal in a Christian conference. And so he asked the gentleman next to him, well, what's so unusual about that? And the man looks at me and says, well, this is a Unitarian conference. They're, they're, they're just one person. And, and so he had a moment of awkwardness as he realized the mistake he made. But he leant across and said, but I'm confused. Why did they give me such a loud ovation? Why did they clap for so long? And the man next to him said, oh, they just like your accent. They just like your accent. I feel some of the joy of that in, in working in an American church, and yet it demonstrates, right, that the, the words aren't always the most important thing in any communication. There's what is conveyed beyond that. And we know that from body language. We know that from the fact that it's not just our words that tell people what we really mean. And, and somewhere we're looking at more than words when we talk about trying to perceive God. We're trying to understand what his heart is. Heart is. And words may well be included. We are trying to perceive God, is how Dallas Willard phrases it, but there's a complication already there that maybe you see, because we're trying to perceive God, but we are also, we are trying to perceive God, who is beyond us, who is bigger than us, who is to a degree not understandable by human beings. There are ways that we get to learn his heart, but even this book that we read, this Bible, these scriptures, they can't give us every tiny bit of information about God and the promise is that eternity is a constant learning of just who God is and what his heart for humanity really is. So it's limited because of who we're trying to perceive. And if we're honest, it's probably limited by the we, because it's you and me, with our somewhat limited desires and perhaps half-heartedness. For our uncertainty that we even really want to hear from the God of the universe, because that could complicate things quite considerably. It's all of those things wrapped into that sentence when we say, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And yet the picture itself is beautiful and compelling. Brother Lawrence says this, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice it and experience it. It's pulling us into something, there's something that's calling to each one of us that calls ourselves followers of Jesus. As much as we might think this whole idea is just for the select few or maybe is, is rare, it may not be as rare as we think. Uh, another Dallas Willard quote says this, it is widely recognized that a major part of prayer is listening to God and letting God direct us. But those who experience a directing word from God rarely speak about it. Often they have never spoken of it at all even to their closest friends. Perhaps you would share that experience. You might say, there's been ways that God has spoken, but, but I've never shared it because, perhaps because I'm just not sure whether it was real. 
And on week one, I gave you a list of six kind of clearing the path things, principles that I've learned, maybe the hard way, and, and I wanted to add a seventh. So if you missed the first six, you can go back to week one. But the seventh one would be this. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to get it wrong. When it comes to the realm of trying to listen and perceive what the God of the universe might be saying, it's okay to make mistakes. I hate, or hate's a strong word, frustrated by people that, that get these magic things, these, these things that are supposed to be some kind of image because I've never been able to do it. I've stared at them, I've followed all the advice, I've, I've done all of the things where people say like you've got to kind of look at it with one eye, you've got to look through it, you've got to get close up to it and then step back from it, you've got to do this and this and this, you've got to do it while standing under a rainbow, under a blue sky with this and this and this and, and all I can see here is like peacocks that have been broken into many parts um, and yet some people get it and, and the truth is perhaps I haven't taken the time to learn to see as I'm supposed to see, to capture this. And maybe I don't do it because I just get frustrated with getting it wrong. I've wondered whether we who live in the West, especially we who live in America, I've wondered whether we have a problem with failure. Not that we fail often, but we're uncomfortable to fail. This is Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland Athletics. He, he was an incredible baseball prospect coming out of college. He was supposed to be one of the greatest players that ever lived. What stopped him was this. He wants to succeed every single time he does something. And so he doesn't try things after a while because of his own failure. To tell Billy Bean a good success rate in baseball is to hit the ball one out of three times, well, that just doesn't fly. He wants to hit it every single time. And I wonder if we're like that. We struggle to learn stuff because we struggle with failure. As I thought about this, I thought about my relationship with these two things here. So I grew up with one of these. It's a soccer ball, in case you don't know. Just, uh, no, it's not your thing. But, but I grew up with one of these things. And one of my delights in, in playing soccer was to, to occasionally play with guys that, are, that had come from America and were playing for the first time because they were terrible at kicking a soccer ball. They just didn't get the sport if they hadn't grown up with it. And then I came out here to coach, and I would regularly encounter students that would say, do you think I'm good enough to play at the highest level? And I would say, I don't, I don't think so. And then parents would come and say, can my son play at this level? And I'd say, no, that's definitely not in his future, but it wasn't in their upbringing like it was in mine. And so that was a joy for me. And then... I got hit with the reversal, because then I started hanging around with a future American wife and with more Americans, and someone handed me one of these, and the tables were turned. Now, you guys call this a football, and, uh, um, and I love this sport, whatever you might call it reasonably. When I moved here, my brother said to me, how can you hang out with those people? They live in the parkway, so they drive in the parkway, they park in the driveway, and they play football with their hands. Uh, and that doesn't make sense. But what I recognized is this, in the same way so many uh, young American guys didn't grow up around a soccer ball, I just didn't grow up around this thing. And so learning to throw it was distinctly challenging. I would love it. Is there anyone in this room who would say, I throw one of these really, really well? It's gotta be someone. It's gotta be someone. You wanna come throw this for me? If you got it, you, you, you can bring it, but, but I can throw it. Uh, 
very poorly indeed. So in the first service, we did a great demonstration between two of us, and there was a nice tight spiral from one guy, and it wasn't me. And then there was me, on the other hand, trying to throw this thing that I just find difficult. It, it just isn't natural to me. Somewhere in terms of learning to follow Jesus in every single area, but I would suggest especially learning to hear God's voice, these three words matter an awful lot. There is something that is new, there is something that is normal, and there is something that is natural. There is new, there is normal, and then there is natural. The first time you're invited to do something, it is a new thing, it is a new experience. And when you are invited to listen to God's voice, it is brand new. And then maybe there's this possibility that you do it often enough, or you try to do it often enough, and perhaps it becomes normal. And then after a while, perhaps it becomes natural. Does that make it perfect? Does that make it the cheat code we talked about on week one? No, but it does make it easier and easier if time goes on. But there's an element to this that I would just remind you of, that if I was constantly afraid to learn to throw a football, I would just never let go of the thing in the first place. If I'm waiting to perfection to just get to that point of release, it's never going to get there without the practice and the movement from new to normal, to natural. Those three words, they seem like they matter an awful lot. And so really we're in the realm of, do I want this? And do I desire this? In Psalm 130, the writer paints this incredible picture. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. There's this image that says it twice because it wants us to capture what it is to be stood there in the dark, waiting for the sunrise, believing that brings some kind of hope. Somewhere our learning and our processing through new, uh, normal to natural will depend on our desire. What I would add to that is this. I just think by nature, some of us find this easier than others. And that's okay too. As some of us we might find it easier. So for the last few minutes we have together on this topic, before we give some space to a practice, I'd love us to reflect on this question. Why does God speak? If we've got to the point where saying we're kind of comfortable with the, the practice of listening to God's voice, we believe he does speak on occasion, maybe he speaks all the time, and maybe we're comfortable with that he can speak to anybody. Maybe we've learned some of the how, like does he speak, yes, maybe through scripture first, or does he speak through some kind of still small voice, all of those different elements. We've, we've kind of worked with some, some who and some how, but why? Is the reason God speaks so that I can have a better life? Is it simply so I can say, I'd like to know which house to buy because I want the best neighbors. Please tell me which house to go to. Is it simply I want to be married to the nicest person, so I'm like, tell me who to marry. Is it simply I want to know where will, I, where will I make the most money? Tell me which job to go get. Is it as simple as can I pray for the lottery numbers and say, God, I want to win the lottery. Give me those numbers somewhere deep inside my heart so I can buy the right ticket. Is, are those kind of things, those purposes why God speaks? Or is there something else? Is there a deeper, more core reason for that? And so to do that, I'd love us to go back beyond this subject just a little bit and begin with how Jesus makes his entry into this world. In Matthew chapter four, it says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
A few verses later, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus came bringing good news. The Greek word is euvangelion. It's the, the word you might know as gospel. So if you've heard the gospel is just limited to your, your bad and, uh, and unacceptable to God and Jesus died so you can be acceptable, that's, that's part of it, but it is just part of it. There's this broader story according to Jesus. It's the, the good news of the kingdom, this world-changing thing. You might say Jesus sets out the grand story. If your story starts with you are bad and God did something so that you could be acceptable, Again, part of the story. But, but the broader story is you were made to be great. You were made to be good. And yes, we get warped. And yes, we get broken. But, but in its core, humanity was made to be good and God's special creation. And, and he redeems us to restore us to that kind of thing. So when your mindset is just bad and then good, you, you maybe missed a part. There's good first and then bad and then returns to good. Jesus paints this big picture. You might say, Jesus talks big, but then we get to watch how he actually works in the world around him. And so in John chapter 5, we're greeted with this story. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? A great number, and Jesus says to one man, do you want to get well? It seems like an obvious question, right? Well, of course, and yet not everyone who's sick wants to get well. A great number lie there, Jesus finds one who has been an invalid for 38 years and asks, do you want to get well? And then this happens. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. The belief was if you got into this water first, you would be healed. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And then I have in my text, written in by hand, dot, 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 and Jesus left hundreds of people by the pool unhealed, as they were before. The story's kind of problematic in one hand, right? Jesus encounters a bunch of people that need him, and there's one person that he approaches, and that person is healed, and then Jesus leaves, and everybody else stays as they were before. Jesus talks big, and then he works small. He works small. I'm not saying the thing isn't spectacular, but I'm saying it's one person. It's one-to-one -one interaction. There are times where Jesus does something miraculous that is for thousands of people. But most of Jesus' miracles are one-to-one -one engagements that include a few people. He talks big, the kingdom is coming. And then in this moment, he engages with one person when there's hundreds that he could engage with. One of the deep frustrations with Jesus for the religious leaders of the day is that Jesus didn't do miracles when he was supposed to do miracles, and he did miracles when he wasn't supposed to do miracles. 
When he ends up in the temple in John chapter two, there's this moment where he clears it of all the sacrifices. And historically, that might be the first year that they moved the sacrifice selling into the temple. And he clears it all and they say to him, show us a sign to say that you can do this. They're not saying he's bad. They're not saying what he did is wrong. They're saying, if you're a prophet who does these kind of things, this is the moment where something spectacular happens. And this is how we know. And there's nothing. And then when he's not supposed to do miracles on the Sabbath, there he is doing miracles. Jesus does miracles when he's not supposed to and he doesn't do them when he is supposed to and you can sense the frustration. And when asked to explain himself, all he says is this. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus comes and talks big. He shares about this kingdom that is coming and then he works small with individual people bringing hope to individual lives. And we might say, why? And then we get to capture perhaps some of his magic or some of his genius because he begins to invite other people just like you into that. John chapter 14, he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to my father. There's this group participation idea that's starting to develop. And then he he paints this beautiful picture of what his organic kingdom looks like in the next chapter. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Every person listening in the first century when he said vine would have said, wait, that's, that's Israel. That's us. That's our nation. The Psalm 80 says this, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove it out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took Root and filled the land. Isaiah 27 says, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Jesus is saying, I've created this new kingdom that's this new vine and and you can all be part of it. He's again talking big. He's again painting this wonderful picture. He now invites big. Come into this grand story. Play your part in it. You have something to do here. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And just like before, this Jesus who talks big and then acts or works more has talked big again about this beautiful picture and he's about to turn it small again so you and I as simple people can grasp it for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
Jesus says to his disciples, you are now friends. You're now going to be involved in what I'm doing. I no longer call you slaves. The word here is servants, but the translation really is slaves. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, slaves, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. In Greek, the word friends is this word, philoi. Yes, it's a dearly loved, prized, personal, intimate friendship, a trusted, confident, held dear in a close bond of personal affection. But there's a problem with this reading and this translation, a friend. In the Bible, friend or the Bible's culture in the first century, friend can mean lots of things, except one thing. It never means buddy or pal. Never. It's just not in the language. Always means something different to that. When Jesus paints this picture, it's easy for us to see it as something like this. I was back in Michigan uh, last week and I got to hang out with a group of my friends back there. These three guys that I'm with are all people who were students of mine at some point. So I met two of them when they were 14 and one of them when he was 18 and I got to work with them in that role of I'm your discipleship person. I get to tell you kind of what to do. We go away on trips, and if you don't listen to me, you're never coming again. All of those different things. They were all horrible at that obedience type thing, but that was the principle at least in place. We have a tendency to read what Jesus say, says here as this. They used to be servants, used to be students, and now they're friends. Now we're pals. Now we go back and I call them up and we hang out and we get together. That's how we understand this. But that's just not what the Bible is saying here. It's just not what John wants us to understand and it's certainly not what Jesus is teaching. There's a problem for us as first century, 21st century people when we read the Bible. It has things that it thinks are important as a culture and they're not things that we necessarily think are important. So three things that are at the core of first century life are these. Kinship, mediation, patronage. Kinship, mediation, and patronage. Not only do we not know about these things, if we can kind of unlock them a little bit, we think they're bad. We think they're bad. Kinship is what it is to, 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 for us to show nepotism. So someone hires a family member and we say, that's not right, you can't hire your family members. And then the rest of the world says, what? Are you crazy? Family are the first people that you hire. They're the ones that you can trust the most. They're the ones that were most likely to be loyal to you. Mediation is, is what we would call a, a middleman. It's someone who stands in between and we say, you shouldn't need that. It should be independent. And, and patronage is, well, that, that's what it is to get benefits from someone. That's you relying on somebody else. We think these words are bad. And yet they're at the heartbeat of the first century world everywhere. These words help us understand everything about society in the first century. So when we read Jesus say this, a key phrase is this one in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. How many of you in the room have a friend that you get to command? Anybody? Has that worked for anyone ever? Who has a person that you go and get coffee and you say, you pay, 
otherwise you're no longer my friend. <laughs> Nobody. Who has a friend that says, I'm moving house this week, you will help, or you're no longer my friend. There's actually some people pointing at people next to them, just, you know, so it does work for some people. As a general rule, this does not work well. This is not 21st century friendship. It's not how we operate. We don't have hierarchy in friendship. Our friendship's equality. Our friendship's were pals. We go out, we have a coffee together. We go out, we have a beer together. But, but if I ask you something, you get to say no. And Jesus, in his unpacking of friendship, is like, if you don't obey my command, you're not really my friend. And, and, and his mark of, yes, we're friends, is, yes, you'll do what I command. This is not first century French, 21st century friendship in play here. This, this is something different. I would suggest what we're getting to see here is this word patronage in play. It's this word patronage in play. I'm going to give you a story that kind of explains this. Supposing you have a bread oven. Supposing you uh, cook bread for people to make a living. And supposing one day your bread oven burns down. And you have no way of replacing it. So you kind of think about your options. You can't get a loan because you have no collateral. And you're kind of at a loose end. And then I come over to you and I say this. I have a friend that can help you. Again, I don't mean a buddy or a pal. What I mean is I have someone who's helped me. Maybe they'll help you too. And so the next morning, you and I get together and we go and we see my friend and we stand in a whole line of people because this is an important person, an affluent person, an influential person. And I introduce you and I say, my friend here, they lost their bread oven and they have no way of living. Is there anything you can do for them? And the patron, the man sits there and he says, yeah, I can replace the bread oven. And now as part of that deal, what you do is you, you get to bake bread for me and I'll give you a fair price for it, but that's your priority. And then you can bake bread for other people and you can sell it and one day maybe you'll return the money. But that's not really the, the point. What you'll do is every day you'll come with a whole other bunch of people and you'll say, is there anything I can do for you today? Because at some point I might need a favor from you. That's how patronage worked. Someone created a new possibility for you, a new world for you, and they've done that for other people. And like those other people, now there's kind of this loyalty in return. You've become part of their bigger extended family unit. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. The term for that in the first century was this. It was friend. It was friend. When Jesus says that you're now my friends, he's not saying buddies, pals. There is elements that he likes you. There's elements that he is for you. There's elements that he's excited when you get good things and all those are relayed in other places. But here simply is this, is this term patronage in play. You are a friend because the king has done something for you and that king has done something remarkable. This, thing, this king has done something unheard of because this king hasn't replaced a bread oven this king has given his life. Greater love has this than no man that he lays down his life for his friends. Not buddy, not pal. This one lays down his life for the people that come and say, I need something from you. This is unusual patronage. This is remarkable. This is different. I would wonder what a community would look like when a bunch of people every single day Wake up and say this to the king. What can I do for you today? What can I do for you today? 
This is your world. This is your grand story. You're reshaping this thing. I'm a part of that. But you have done something incredible. And now I want to know, what is it that I can do? Is there someone to love well? Is there something to give? Is there something to get involved in? Is there some different way of participation? Once again, Jesus talks big. There is this kingdom thing in play. There is this vine that is growing. But now he leads small because he tells his group of followers, you are my friends. You're no longer slaves. You're friends. I have done this for you and you're part of this great family. Jesus invites us to work in small ways within his grand story. And central to that question is simply, what can I do for you today? It's what we're invited into. And so for the end of the service, we're, we're gonna practice that. We're gonna close out this series on listening to God's voice by asking him what he might ask us to do today. So I'm gonna invite Hannah to come up and she's gonna play in the background. And, and up at the front, there's gonna be a bunch of people. These are people that, when I talked earlier about new, normal, natural, they have been intentional about trying to move down that pathway, down that journey. They have worked at listening to God's voice and, and for some of them, it's now become a normal practice. And so for some of them, it's now become a natural practice. But if you would say, I feel like God used to speak and it hasn't happened recently. If you would say, I don't think God has ever spoken to me, I'm not sure he ever would. The invite is during this time is to come and these guys would love to do something for you called listening prayer. They're gonna come alongside you and they're simply gonna say, God, what are you saying to this person today? And maybe you'll hear something wonderful. Maybe you'll hear something life-changing or at worst, maybe you'll see what it is to listen modeled for you. And for the rest of us, we're gonna listen as Hannah plays but it's gonna be quiet because what we learned the other week is this, in the silence of close presence, of a being so close that the stare and the wafer thin whisper are all that is needed. And somewhere in that moment, what I believe is this, in this very strange community of people, some of whom you're like, I'm not even sure about this faith thing. Uh, I'm here because my friend commanded me to come or whatever, um, you might hear something. Some of you might say it's been so long and it feels so dry and you might hear something. And those are wonderful things. And the reason I'm willing to take this risk, because this is a risky thing, is this. Somewhere in the midst of this, as God speaks and as you ask the question, what would you have me do for you today? He might say to you something like this. I want you to go over and say this to this person over the other side of the aisle. I want you to encourage this person. I want you to send this text to this person. I want you to pray for this person. I want you to serve in this area. And some of that can be very intimidating and very risky. But you know what the reason I'm willing to risk it? It's because of a story I heard a while back. There's a man running a service and someone came to him and said, I feel God has asked me to say this to the person sitting on the other side of the room. And so the pastor said, oh, I'd love to introduce you and we can go over and share that. And so they walked over to the man together and he introduced them and said, this is what I feel like God is asking me to share. And the person said, the pastor said, does that make sense? And the man who listened said, yeah, that's incredible. That's exactly what I needed to hear. 
And then to help them figure it out, the pastor said to the, the first man, how confident were you that it was God speaking? And the guy said, 10% at best. And then he said to the person who heard exactly what they needed to hear, how confident are you, how glad are you that this person took a risk on 10%? He said, 100%. That was exactly what I needed to hear. Listening to God's voice has never been easy. It's never been risk-free. It's never been a cheat code. But my conviction is this. It's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. So would you stand with me, friends? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.